Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, today we are talking about zip codes. I'm sure that you have heard just about everyone in the education world make some statement to the effect that your zip code should not determine the quality of the education you get. It's a pretty hard statement to disagree with. I've heard Betsy DeVos say that. I've heard Bill Gates say that. I've heard Arnie Duncan say that and Rahm Emanuel. But what does it actually mean? Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to disagree with because of course, you know, the the underlying statement there is that every kid deserves a good education, right? And that's something that we all agree with. But there's also a kind of uh, loaded ideological piece to that, right? Which uh, implies that everybody lives where they live and uh, they have different, currently they have different access uh, to different kinds of neighborhood schools, some of which are highly segregated and because of that segregation, highly unequal. Um, and so it then presents a kind of natural choice, which is that we then should free people from the shackles of neighborhood schools and allow them to go anywhere they want via some school choice mechanism like charters or vouchers. Our guest today is Richard Rothstein, who is the the author of a new book called The Color of Law. And what he does is in a systematic, sort of devastating and fairly accessible way, he exposes the underpinnings of the policies that made our zip codes the way that they are, right? That that it doesn't just happen that some neighborhoods are poor and segregated while others are are wealthy and and uh inhabited almost exclusively by white people. And I think the historian in me is itching to make a comment here about the importance of history because Richard makes this really interesting argument that you can't really understand the present uh, and what the present conditions are and what they mean and what we should do about them without understanding how we got here. We had the good fortune to be able to sit down with Richard Rothstein while he was visiting Holy Cross, where my co-host Jack Schneider teaches. And just a quick note on the format of this episode. You may notice that you hear a little less of us this time around. That's because our guests wanted to make sure that you understand exactly how our cities and neighborhoods ended up as segregated as they are today. Here's Richard Rothstein talking about his book, The Color of Law. We have, and the reason I wrote this book was in response to a national myth that the reason we have residential segregation in every metropolitan area in this country is because of something that we've come to call de facto segregation, something that uh, occurs across the, the whole country in every metropolitan area, and it's the result of private activity. It's the result of uh, real estate agents, rogue, rogue real estate agents steering uh, white families only to white neighborhoods and black families only to black neighborhoods. Or it's the result of people's choices of wanting to live among same race neighbors. Or it's because of income differences and African Americans are not uh, uh, able to afford to buy homes in white neighborhoods. Uh, or it's because of uh, private individuals discriminating and, and white flight. Um, all of these causes of de facto segregation are a composite that it's very hard to figure out what to do about because 
if residential segregation, and as I say, in every metropolitan area in this country, is the result of millions of accidental private decisions, it's very hard to think of millions of accidental private decisions that can undo it. But once I came to understand, as I did the research for this book, once we understand that the system of residential segregation is the product of very explicit public policy designed intentionally to create residential segregation, then it's easier to understand that we can do something about it because if it was created by public policy, it can be reversed by public policy. Instead of millions of private decisions giving rise to residential segregation, Rothstein identified just a handful of very specific causes, and the first was the government's public housing program. So there were two main federal policies that in the 20th century created residential segregation uh, in a form whose effects endure today. Uh, The first is the public housing program. Most of you your people, people who read this, listen to this podcast, think of public housing as I did before I began this research, as a place where poor people live, where um, minorities live, where uh, single mothers with children and unemployed families live. That's not how public housing began. The first civilian public housing in this country was created in the New Deal uh, by the Public Works Administration as a program for middle class working class families, mostly white, who were homeless during the Depression. It was also an attempt to stimulate construction employment during the Depression. And the government uh, created, as I say, the first civilian housing programs, uh, public housing programs in this country on a segregated basis, frequently segregating communities that had never known segregation before. So as I describe in in my book, The Color of Law, uh, Langston Hughes, the great African-American poet, uh, talks about how he uh, grew up in the early 20th century in an integrated Cleveland neighborhood, a working class neighborhood. His uh, best friend, he says, was Polish. He dated a Jewish girl. This was not unusual. Uh, The uh, many metropolitan areas had integrated neighborhoods uh, in the mid early 20th century in a way that we're completely unfamiliar with today, there was much more integration in urban areas than there was now for the simple reason that the uh, families didn't have automobiles to get to work. So if workers wanted to get to work in a downtown factory, uh, they had to live close enough to it to walk. And so you had neighborhoods with uh, Irish immigrants and Italian immigrants and Jewish immigrants and African-Americans and rural migrants uh, working in the same workplaces and therefore living in the same neighborhoods as in Cleveland. Well, the Public Works Administration came into that neighborhood in Cleveland and demolished uh, 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 tenement housing where working class families of both races were living and built separate projects, one for African Americans, one for whites, creating segregation in an area where it had never been known before. Now, I'm not suggesting that Cleveland would have been an integrated utopia were it not for the Public Works Administration, but the Public Works Administration created a pattern. Uh, which reinforced whatever tendencies already existed in Cleveland for segregation and exacerbated them and created guidelines for the future. And this went on all over the country. During World War II, the government rushed to put up housing for all the workers who flooded into cities to take jobs in the war industry. That housing was also segregated, 
and it was everywhere, including in some cities we now think of as among our most progressive. Uh, I like to talk in the book about the places like San Francisco and Cambridge, Massachusetts, which uh, uh, had a, also had a government-created segregation, because I think that if people can um, uh, understand that this happened in places that are considered the most liberal places in the country. It must have happened everywhere. But Richmond, California, across the bay from San Francisco, was at the center of uh, shipbuilding. There were no African Americans virtually uh, living in Richmond before World War II. There were a couple of hundred um, working as domestic servants for white families. Uh, the population of Richmond was less than 20,000 at the beginning of World War II. By the end of World War II, it was 100,000. Uh, I don't know if uh, you can imagine what it's like to uh, for a community in four years to grow from 20,000 to 100,000. But clearly, the shipyards couldn't uh, keep working if the government didn't provide housing for these workers. So the government in this neighborhood, that, in this community, that had never known segregation, didn't even have an African-American population to speak of, created separate housing for African-Americans and for whites. Uh, the housing for African-Americans designated explicitly. This was not people's choices of where to live. Designated explicitly for African-Americans was located along the railroad tracks near the shipyards in the industrial area of Richmond. The housing for whites was located in the residential area further inland. It's not that whites happened to pick those um, those units and blacks happened to pick the uh, units in the industrial area. This was explicitly designated. And again, all over the country, the government created segregation where if it existed before, it existed in a much less uh, uh, rigid form, or in places like Richmond, where it never existed before. After the war, the government vastly expanded its public housing program. That housing was segregated, too. And so were the new subdivisions, places like Levittown, New York, that were strictly for whites. So there's this enormous backlog. The government vastly expanded its public housing program uh, after World War II. Um, Places like Pruitt-Igo in St. Louis or the Robert Taylor Homes in Chicago. Or all of these were built. And remember, we're talking about housing primarily for middle-class and working-class white families. Uh, the Pruitt-Igo Towers, the, the uh, iconic uh, example of public housing, was built as two separate projects. The Pruitt Towers were for African-Americans. The Igo Towers were for whites. And uh, shortly thereafter, and by the mid-1950s, all of a sudden, there were these enormous vacancies in the IGO projects and the white project and long uh, waiting lists for housing in the Pruitt projects. And this again was true all over the country. Uh, the white projects had large vacancies. The black projects had long waiting lists. And that also was a result of another federal policy, uh, which is perhaps even more powerful than the public housing program. And that was a program of another New Deal agency, the Federal Housing Administration, which was created in 1934 that subsidized builders of uh, large subdivisions, entire suburbs, to uh, create these suburbs on condition that no homes be sold to African Americans, on explicit condition that no homes be sold to African Americans. So perhaps the, the, the most famous of these is uh, uh, Levittown, just east of New York City. Uh, Levitt, William Levitt, the builder, could never have assembled the capital to build 17,000 homes, which is what Levittown was, uh, on his own. He couldn't have got the capital to do it. He had no buyers. He had nobody to invest in the project. The only way he could get the capital was by going to the Federal Housing Administration, submitting his plans for the development, 
and uh, then taking those plans uh, once the Federal Housing Administration approved them to banks in order to get guaranteed loans for construction. And the condition that the Federal Housing Administration placed on Levitt was that no homes be sold to African Americans. And further, every deed in Levittown include a clause that prohibited resale to African Americans. So as a result of this policy, which existed again all over the country, creating suburbs around every metropolitan area, whites were given an incentive to leave public housing. Remember, these were people, again, not poor people, to leave public housing and move into these subsidized, uh, federally subsidized developments around the country. The subsidies were so great that uh, um, when a, a family moved from public housing to a place like Levittown, especially if they were veterans with a VA mortgage, but even with an FHA mortgage, a Federal Housing Administration mortgage, they could pay less in their monthly carrying charges than they were paying for rent in the public housing that they left. So understandably, you develop these enormous vacancies in um, the uh, public housing, in the white designated public housing. Eventually, it became so conspicuous that the public housing was open to African Americans as well. Uh, it became predominantly an African-American institution. At the same time, uh, jobs, industry started to leave uh, the cities where the public housing was located and move to the suburbs where the workers, the white workers now were. So people in the public housing became poorer and poorer, more and more unemployment. And we, had the, we now, then had the public housing that we're familiar with today. Well, this history was once well known. And what the uh, policymakers in the mid-20th century, uh, how they described it. They said the federal government has created a white noose around African-American neighborhoods and urban areas. Okay, so there you have it. That is the foundation of what happened. So how does this history continue to create and define the residential segregation that we have today? When families uh, moved to places like Levittown, and there were hundreds of them around the country. All of California was developed in this way with Federal Housing Administration requirements that no African Americans be admitted to suburbs, uh, places like Lakewood, south of Los Angeles, or Panorama City, any of those. Um, uh, when those, uh, those families moved in, those homes sold for about nine, $10,000 a piece. They were small homes, 750 square feet in Levittown. In today's dollars, that's about $100,000 or $90,000, about twice national median income, a little bit less than twice national median income. Those homes were affordable to working class families. A working class family can afford to buy a home for twice national median income, especially if there's no down payment required as the Veterans Administration provided. Today, those homes in Levittown or in Daly City, south of San Francisco or Lakewood or Panorama City or any of the hundreds and hundreds of suburbs like that in between, they sell for three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000, six, seven, eight times national median income. Those homes are unaffordable to working class families of any race. So we passed the Fair Housing Act in 1968. And uh, this Fair Housing Act said, in effect, okay, African Americans, you're now free to move to Levittown or free to move to any of these other suburbs. But it was an empty promise because the families who could have moved into those homes uh, can now no longer, their, their descendants can now no longer afford to do so. The white families who moved into those homes in uh, the mid 20th century gained over the course of the next two or three generations, half a million dollars in equity 
maybe a little bit less, but a lot of equity. The black families who were required to live in rented apartments, either in public housing or private housing in urban areas, gained no equity. The result is that um, today, nationwide, uh, African-American incomes on average are about 60% of white incomes. But African-American wealth is only about 7% of white wealth. And that enormous disparity, a 60% income ratio, a 7% wealth ratio, is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy practiced in the mid-20th century. And it's because of those policies that residential segregation is so locked in today because it came tied to differences in wealth, differences in, in appreciation of homes that determine people's housing choices today. So African-Americans can't take advantage generally. I mean, we've had some integration since the 1968 uh, Fair Housing Act. I'm not minimizing its importance. Uh, Levittown now is about 2% African-American. Uh, in a metropolitan area, that's 12% uh, African-American. So it's not like there's been no progress whatsoever, but the basic patterns of residential segregation that we have everywhere in the country were created by federal policy in the mid-20th century, and their effects persist today. At the very end of Rothstein's book, he has this little section where he responds to some of the questions that he gets over and over again as he travels around and, and speaks about his book. Uh, to groups like the students that he talked to at, at Holy Cross. People want to know things like, um, do you support reparations? And and basically they they have, you know, the same sorts of questions that 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 we do, right? That we want to know, you've written this great book, you've laid out, you know, decades upon decades of federal policies that created these problems. Now tell us in, you know, uh, in, in short order how you're going to fix it. It, it seems to me that that's actually a sign that his book was very successful because if the reaction that people have to the book is to immediately begin trying to sort through potential policy solutions, that means that there is a broader goal that can be achieved here uh, by sharing this history with other people who perhaps are not itching to leap into to action right now. And that's basically the point that he's about to make, right? That there, until we have some kind of national consensus about the the nature of the problem. But I think what, you know, what is really kind of satisfying about, about his book is that there, he has produced an explanation that is definitive. I don't talk much about specific remedies. I have to some because everybody asks this kind of question. But the fundamental problem we face now is to change the national understanding of how this happened. And that's going to take a while. And it's, um, it's putting the cart before the horse to start to advocate specific remedies. Uh, unless there's a national consensus, or at least a consensus among policymakers, that we do in fact have de jure segregation, not de facto segregation, it becomes impossible to, to talk about remedies because any remedies we talk about uh, will seem wildly unrealistic and impractical. Um, uh, the Supreme Court, as, as a uh, well-known cartoonist at the beginning of the 20th century uh, uh, said, uh, follows the election returns, and the Supreme Court is not going to uh, issue a de jure segregation decision about housing until there's a much broader understanding. So I know that your, your focus is on education. So let me give you an example of one place we should start. 
uh, in the course of writing The Color of Law, uh, I examined every um, high school textbook that was widely used in American high schools today. Uh, now, I, this part of my research was done in 2012, so maybe it's changed by now, but I doubt it. Uh, every one of the textbooks that I uh, examined lied about this history or uh, misstated it. Uh, uh, and for example, the most widely used American history textbook uh, at that time, five years ago that I uh, examined, at that time the most widely used American history textbook was The Americans. Uh, 1,200 pages. Uh, uh, kids have to lug around this this 1,200-page uh, volume uh, in their backpacks. Uh, in those 1,200 pages, it had one paragraph devoted to um, what are called segregation in the North. And within that one paragraph, there was a single sentence devoted to housing segregation, and the sentence read as follows. In the North, African-Americans found themselves forced into segregated neighborhoods. Passive voice sentence, uh, no description of who forced them. They found themselves. They sort of woke up one day and looked out the window and said, hey, we're in a segregated neighborhood. And that's what we're teaching young people today. So the first thing I think we need to do is address the way in which we're te teaching this history in high schools. And uh, it's not just changing the textbooks. It's developing alternative curricula to uh, teach this history since the textbooks don't do it. It's developing uh, individual lesson plans that uh, address this history. It's going to uh, progressive teacher organizations like the Zen Education Project or Teachers for Change or other groups like that that are developing alternative curricula. Because unless we do a better job uh, teaching the, the next generation about how all this happened, they're going to be in as poor a position to remedy it as our generation has been. So we need a massive public education program, not just in high schools, but among the general public, uh, to explain to the American people how this all happened. Because unless we have an understanding of the fact that residential segregation is as unconstitutional as we know school segregation was unconstitutional before 1954, Residential segregation is no different. It's just as unconstitutional. Unless we understand that, we're not going to be in a position to remedy it. Well, obviously, the solution to burdening kids with these 1,200-page textbooks... Is that a new chapter? Or preload them on their personalized learning devices. You know, I can't help but just observe that there's a kind of implicit critique here about uh, the, the argument you hear uh, around the history curriculum, that the history curriculum sh should celebrate the American past uh, rather than focusing on uh, a critique of the U.S. This is something you hear quite, quite frequently uh, around the history and social studies curriculum. And he highlights how important it is to understand the fullness of the past uh, and perhaps especially in its darker elements because however you understand uh, our path to the present is going to shape whatever you think policy solutions are normal and natural. And so, for instance, uh, to give an example from uh, the, the Pat story that gets told about American public schools, if you understand the history somewhat falsely as uh, being one in which American public schools were created uh, in the image of factories in the late 19th, early 20th century, 
um, then that doesn't make sense anymore uh, because you know instead of uh, Model Ts, we're driving Teslas, and instead of communicating through switchboards, we've all got smartphones in our pockets. Well, some someday we will release the sort of the blooper outtakes from this interview, and people can hear me starting off the interview by referring to Rothstein's book. The Color of Law is a grim book. And and Rothstein here explains why he thinks that reckoning with that, that history is is so important and also, you know, points the way forward. This is actually a very polarized period in terms of talking about race. We have had um the exposure of a white supremacist minority in this country that was always there but has now been empowered and um, uh, enabled by uh, President Trump, uh, and that's very frightening. But on the other hand, we have much, much more discussion about uh, the legacy of slavery, the legacy of Jim Crow, uh, the uh, obligation that the country has to address its racial problems and and to create uh, equality than we've ever had before. Uh, when I uh, started working on this book, which was 10 years ago, I did it because I'm a policy writer, and that's what policy writers do. They write about policy. I never thought that this book would get any attention because nobody was talking about race at the time. It was what people thought of as a post-racial society. And then since Ferguson, since uh, the death of Michael Brown at the hands of a policeman, and subsequent incidents in other cities. There is a national awakening to the fact that we have never addressed uh, the legacy of slavery, uh, the caste system that we've created uh, in violation of the Civil War amendments, and we have a, a national discussion about it. Whether the national discussion that we're having in this very positive way will overcome the negative empowering of white supremacist forces, I can't predict, but we're certainly in a lot better position now that we're confronting it, not only with my book, but with many others, as you say, uh, than we were before when we were silent about this issue. So The Color of Law is not primarily a book about education. It's a book about segregated neighborhoods and how we got to where we are today. But as as you told me earlier, Rothstein's previous work has really focused on education. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to think about how he got to this topic. Uh, you know, I'm thinking, for instance, of a book he wrote with another previous guest of ours, Rebecca Jacobson, uh, as well as with uh, a third author, Tamara Wilder, and it was called Grading Education. Um, and in that book, one of the things that they found was that Americans broadly believe in a pretty comprehensive vision of public education, uh, that the schools should do many things for kids. And of course, that's not what we currently see. Um, we currently see that accountability mechanisms, uh, in many cases, are narrowing the educational experience uh, and narrowing the vision of education for students in schools uh, where um, you know test scores are not what uh, policymakers would like them to be. And so, you know, I. I see a very strong connection here because one of the ways you restore the fuller mission of education is by having a, an equal mix of powerful, well-resourced parents in every school advocating for what they believe in and what they want for their kids. 
We started out this episode, we framed it, in fact, as, as really a, uh, a look at the, the zip code debate, that we have this, we have a, a history of how we got to where we are. And we, one of the questions that, that we put to Richard Rothstein is really the key question that divides the, the current conversation about education. You know, can you have quality public schools in neighborhoods that are intensely segregated? And as you'll hear, Rothstein really has no patience even for that question. Well, I think that's a very complicated question because fundamentally, uh, my argument is that we can't have good schools unless we have integrated neighborhoods. And so whether uh, people are misperceiving good schools in segregated neighborhoods is a, a question that I think is not really the most important one. The question is how can we integrate neighborhoods so that every school has a mix of low, moderate, and um, affluent families, income families, uh, is, is integrated. Uh, we don't measure uh, school quality well today. Um, we consider schools good if they have a lot of white middle-class children who are well-prepared to succeed and whom the schools simply have to pass through. They come in successful and they leave successful. We consider schools bad if they have uh, schools with a, a lot of uh, disadvantaged children who um, come to school with serious economic and social problems that interfere with their learning, uh, and uh, we consider those bad schools because the children come in at relatively low levels and they leave at perhaps even higher levels than they came in with, but still at lower levels than middle-class schools. But that's not a judgment on the schools. That's a judgment on the social conditions that... Um, uh, children uh, come to school with. But nonetheless, if a uh, middle-class parent is thinking of a school to send uh, his or her child to, um, they don't want to send their child to a school where all the other children are low achieving. Because it's true that the, their child may not get as good a, an academic education. They may get a better social education, but they're not going to get as good an academic education in a, in a school where all the children are low achieving, even though it might be a very good school uh, given the problems that it's dealing with. But fundamentally, we're not going to solve this problem by uh, choosing schools. We're going to solve this problem by enforcing the neighborhood school concept in integrated neighborhoods. That was Richard Rothstein, the author of The Color of Law. Jack, since Rothstein's book came out earlier this year, it seems like one study after another has confirmed what he just explained to us, that there's this huge racial wealth gap in this country, and it has its origins in housing discrimination, and that it really you know, it continues to constrain what's possible for African Americans. Well, not long after we sat down with Rothstein, I came upon yet another study, and this one was about misperceptions of the racial wealth gap. It turns out that whites, and especially wealthy whites, vastly underestimate the racial wealth gap. As the researchers put it, they have a delusional view of economic progress. And I started thinking about what a problem it is that so much of, of our education policy realm is, is overseen by wealthy white people. These are really, we started out talking about the, um, the sort of zip code frame, that your zip code shouldn't constrain your education opportunities. But if the, if the people driving the policy don't think there's a problem and they don't understand the nature of the problem, that seems like a problem. It also seems to me to be a prerequisite for believing that 
good schools can create uh, broader social and economic equity, right? That if you believe that we have largely moved past historical inequalities and that you know, any differences in wealth and income are, um, you know, if they exist at all, are minor and uh, will soon be past us as well, then it's quite easy to believe that the last challenge is simply to free people from the shackles of their bad local public schools and allow them to attend high-quality schools anywhere. The story becomes very different if you recognize that the role of history continues to shape the way that people are experiencing the present. One of the, um, there's a section in his book that we didn't get to in the interview that's that's so powerful. He actually looks at what the, exactly what you just described through the experiences of some families and based on the kinds of options that were available to them. And you see how generations later, the the opportunities available to the people who were shut out of the suburbs and forced into uh, you know basically segregated neighborhoods how constrained those their you know their choices still are right that it means uh, maybe a couple years of community college versus a four year college that means the relationship to student debt is completely different and of course all of these things are self perpetuating right that's that's the other part of this problem is that not only do you have historical policies that radically limited opportunity, but did so in a way that perpetuates over time, right? That creates feedback loops. So people who have no wealth, for instance, uh, are far less likely to earn a college diploma, which makes them far less likely to accumulate wealth over time. Uh, conversely, people who uh, have wealth are more likely to uh, move successfully through the educational system, acquiring credentials along the way that then open doors for them, many of which provide economic opportunity uh, and lead uh, them and their children to further uh, educational and economic prosperity. I have to say that I found Rothstein's book to be one of the most eye-opening accounts of contemporary American history and and policy and the the way that policy shapes and constrains the lives of people today. But it's also made me really, really impatient with people who continue to trot out the zip code. Your education shouldn't be determined by your zip code. Yeah, it almost feels like you know what you're asking for is for our listeners to come up with an alternate phrase that could be used as a hashtag in response to that pat line whenever it gets trotted out. Well, listeners, I hope you're up up to that challenge. Until next time, I'm Jennifer Berkshire and I'm Jack Schneider. And just a reminder, if you like what you're hearing on Have You Heard, leave us a review on iTunes. That will help us realize our our long-running plan for global domination. We want to go to scale. Thanks for listening to Have You Heard. 